I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of Sick Boy Podcast. And uh, it's just me, just Jer, chiming in uh, to remind all of you that unlike every other Friday, this week's going to be just a little bit different. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be bringing you the feel-good feels with uh, me, Brian, Taylor, and Lauren, uh, because we're taking a little bit of time uh, away from the mics to prep ourselves for the big, the big shift over to the CBC, which actually some of you might have already seen in your, your podcast feeds. Um, so that's all exciting. But instead of having that, uh, you know, our little, our little um, foreplay segment at the top there where we just talk about, <laughs> talk about a bunch of silly shit like how many hot dogs a human can eat, um, uh, instead we're going to go right into our conversation with our guest this week, um, who is uh, Dr. Sandra Meyer. Dr. Meyer is an associate professor of psychiatry at Dalhousie University. She's a psychologist, a geneticist, and an epidemiologist. Jesus Christ, Dr. Meyer, save some for the rest of us. Um, <clears throat> this, this conversation was really interesting. We, we sat down with Dr. Meyer last week, and we talked about um, social media and its effects that it has on mental health. Um, Dr. Meyer has actually started an app called ProSit, and the, app, the idea behind the app is that it tracks your mental health. Really, really fascinating stuff, <clears throat> but we get big into, you know, the discussion surrounding um, uh, how, how our phones or our screens are, you know, having a, a can have a, a, either a, a positive or a or really negative effect on our mental health. <clears throat> Actually, you know what? I got my phone here. Let's just see what my, uh, this, where my screen time is. This, uh, this is going to be really embarrassing. I'm only doing this because Brian and Taylor aren't here. Um, okay, here we go. Screen time, daily average. Oh, my God. That can't be right. Holy shit. Daily average, six... <laughs> fuck. Six hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> which is down... Which is down 44% from last week. What the hell was last week? Get out of here. How does that make sense? See all activity. What do we got here? Uh, by week. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my God. 25 hours in a week? Jeremy. Oh, my God. 13 hours of entertainment? <laughs> 11, <laughs> 11 hours of social networking and uh, three hours of productivity. Oh, God, Jeremy, you suck. Okay, well, let's keep that to ourselves. Um, well, here we go, folks. Let's dive right into this wonderful conversation with Dr. Meyer. And as a little reminder, we will be back next week uh, with our regular scheduled programming. Um, the whole crew will be back again. 
And um, yeah, we hope you enjoy this this little episode. I'll, I'll see you on the other side of it, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll see you out properly, like a good host. Let's get right into this. Uh, we are sitting here with Dr. Sandra Meyer. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. yes oh, fine. my God. That, you know what? Nine times out of ten, totally fuck up a person's name. So I feel pretty, I feel accomplished today. <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Meyer, I'm going to start by asking the question that we've been asking most of our doctor guests as of late. Are you a, um, a medical doctor or a smart person doctor? A smart person doctor. Cool. <laughs> and what uh, what makes you a smart person doctor? What's your what's your what's your specialty? I have a background in psychology, epidemiology, and genetics. So I'm a doctor in human sciences. Well, I mean that's like borderline doctor doctor, right? Kind of. I mean you're kind of dealing with a lot of the doctory things <laughs> that a that a. Well, I'm really making myself sound like a, a not so smart person doctor. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is, this is going to be really interesting because we are, so, you know, over the, since COVID exploded, um, on sick boy, we've been talking a lot, especially lately, we've been talking a lot about how, about how this, um, global pandemic has been having an effect on our mental health. And, uh, just recently, you know, Brian and myself have, have taken the onus of going to see a therapist and it's been this really interesting journey for the two of us. Um, and I know that mental health is a big part of the work that you do, Dr. Meyer. Um, and in particular, you you have a focus on social media and mental health. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. So we are looking in general at how technology can benefit or negatively affect mental health. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because I feel like I have an addiction to my cell phone. Do do can, can you can you shed any light on that? Is that is this a common problem? Like, why uh, Wait, I, shed I, any in, light in, on it? What do you want her to just diagnose you with an addiction, Brian? Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm actually to to be more specific. I've I've been noticing that like you know I spend like if I'm not doing something, I immediately open my phone and just like check mm -hmm. social media. You know, like look at Instagram, check my TikTok videos, see if they've gone viral yet. Um, is, 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 are you doing research into this aspect of social media or what, like, what exactly, um, are you researching when it comes to social media and, and mental health? Um, so we will start a big approach at this, the discovery center in Halifax where we want to look at how people use social media, because we believe it depends a little bit on why you're using it, what your motivation behind it is. So it mm. can be very addictive, but it can also just be that you want to stay in contact with your friends online or you use it for distraction. It depends a lot on why you're using it um, and how it impacts your mental health. So um, we always believe that it has its good things like staying in contact um, with people is definitely something nice. 
but when you actually are so addicted that you're staying up late at night until two o'clock in the morning or pee on chats at very um, unhealthy times or so, then we believe it has rather a negative impact on your health. Mm. So. That's really that's really comforting for me to hear because of, well these guys these guys give me a hard time that I uh, that I don't use. Uh, techno- well, I use technology a lot, but they give me a hard time that I don't use social media uh, en- en- enough or in the right ways. Mostly um, because uh, our business uh, relies on you being active on social media. But I mean, that's another that's another. Story. Well, I agree to disagree, and <laughs> and I and I I'm actually hearing you say that and going, oh, I I I was wondering going into this conversation, you know, I wanted to find out a little bit about how I use social media and, and get a sense of what, of whether it's healthy or unhealthy. Cause I do find myself going to my phone in those times, like you said, Brian, in those times of like those in-betweens, I guess, um, <laughs> in between YouTube ads. Um, and, uh, and, and, and though I use social media in a way to share things with friends and to keep up with things that I'm interested in. Um, but I, I am very, aware in the odd times that I do post something on social media that there is this, there is this subtle drawback. Somebody liked it. Somebody commented on it. How does that, how does that, how does that make me feel? How does it draw me back to opening my phone again? Dopamine hit. What is now? What, what, what is, what is going on in, what is going on in someone's mind or in their brain when, when they, when they see the the like pop up or the new comment um, on on the on the thing that they've just posted, I think that is one of the aspects that um, can have the most impact on mental health. Like this um, social acceptance, it's probably more or less the same as when you have just normal people around you. So normally, we like to have. Um, some acceptance or some value of the people around us, even if you just talk to someone. Um, just in social media, it's more broad and people can even talk to you and tell you how shitty your post was when you are not there anymore. So normally you can at least walk away from your bully, but <laughs> when you are on social media, it's a different quality and also it affects the the level of openness, and um, I think that we look into that, for example, where the bullying mm-hmm. is different when it's on, on online or when it's in person and how it affects people. We have some evidence that it's even harder for people when it's online um, because it doesn't stop and they can basically not extract from it. Um, mm-hmm. And it has a different quality, for example, when you say something not so nice about my post or whether you comment and get sweet tweeted from a lot of people so that they all agree with you um, how bad it is. So um, just the dimensions of it um, can be very different. So mm. It makes me think of like uh, high school kids growing up today rather than when, when we were in high school. Like we, you know, if you got bullied at school, you got bullied at school, but you could go home and it was this kind of like reprieve from that, that, that sense of feeling like you're, you're not fitting in. But if you're taking that home and it's relentless, you know, all hours of the day, that could be really challenging to deal with. And it's not only that you, and it's not only that you, that you check it and it's there. It's like, you're getting the ding, 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 like this kind of Pavlovian, uh, you know, 
like so, someone shitting on you again, someone shitting on you again, like this over and over again. I mean, it, it, or it someone's high fiving you again, and someone's high fiving you again. You know, it's yeah, it, in a in the in a in a really in a really in a really positive sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess, kind and of I guess, positive sense. I guess, and I guess that's the I guess that's really the difference that um, um, that Sandra highlighted there is is depending on what your motivation for using social media is, because I could say that that's my personal experience with social media is like a fairly positive one. Mm. Um, whereas for a lot of people it's, it's not, you know, it'd be really fun and useful is if like, if it is, if someone gives you, when they give you a, a really positive comment, um, your, 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 your device goes like ding dong. And then if you get a, if you get a really shitty comment, like someone's being mean, it's like, Womp womp, you know, and so then you can then and then you have in your head, you're like, oh, you know what? But then we've got to teach technology to to discern what is good and what is bad, hey, and man. that's a whole other can of worms. Hey, man, when I'm using Grammarly, I'll I'll oftentimes get a little emoji that says this email sounds aggressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> Doctor Meyer, one thing that I you know, just, and and again to like kind of come back to the COVID thing, um, uh, before COVID blew up in our faces. Um, there, there was obviously a lot of work being done and, and a lot of things in the, in the media kind of surrounding this idea of, of how, um, how social media in particular can be a bit of a, a, be a bit of a, um, like a detriment to your, to your mental health. If you're, again, like you were saying, it, it, depending on how you're using it. Um, and one thing that I've, I've, I've been wondering myself once COVID sort of exploded, it, it sort of forced us to, or at least, I, I, you know what, I'm, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but for myself personally, when COVID happened and we were in the thick of like quarantine, I found myself being drawn to, uh, to screens a lot more than I already would, would be because it, it, it became like my only source of connection with the outside world. Um, do you have any, have, have you looked into or, or have any, any thoughts on how, how COVID has changed our relationship to, to social media or to, um, to technology in general? So I can speak from the mental health perspective. So we were always invested in doing a lot of things online and also, um, having Zoom sessions, especially with our patients that are farther away because not everyone can always come to Halifax. So keep present, for example, on Newfoundland. Um, it just, from a very positive perspective, to change a lot of things that we can do a lot more. So we can now do a lot of our Zoom sessions online that was much more restricted before. So the health authority allows now a lot more. It's great also some, for some patients, it's actually really great see them at home and how they are doing at home, especially when you have a mother that has three children or something like that, that you can really see them with all the problems that come up. For some patients, they prefer still to come in um, and see the clinicians in place. Um, but yeah, it just, I think it's not better or worse. It just opens up new opportunities and I'm happy that we can give it to some people in that way. On the other hand, it also made us aware that some of our patients cannot just not use the technology in the way we would hope for. And they have a very um, bad, for example, internet plan or so. And there's like a four person family who uses one phone to connect to the outside world. It's not idle. So we spend a lot of time also trying to just get the technique up so that we can people also 
gift devices, but we can naturally not do something about um, just the plants and how well certain parts of um, Nova Scotia are covered. Mm. Um, it makes me uh, think about um, that that example of the the mother that might be home with three children who's trying to access therapy online. Um, one of one of the things I think about is is privacy and and the ability to speak openly about how you're feeling when you know you might be in the same room or next to the same room as somebody in your family that you might not feel comfortable opening up about is uh, opening up about the challenges that you're facing is that is that a common situation that is arising during this like virtual you know accessing virtual therapy uh, so yeah, normally we check in with patients whether they feel like that they can share um, as usual. Um, when they don't say so, there's always the option that they can come to us. So for example, I'm I'm a researcher, so I'm not working at the IWK at the moment. So they transformed my office that um, patients can come in and just sit there in front of Zoom and basically talk to the doctor next to them. So we also try to encourage that we have these places um, where people can come to. It almost seems like, um, kind of speaking to um, to what you were saying just before, uh, just before that is, we've we've sort of entered into this, seemingly entered into this sort of sink or swim environment with technology and how we relate to it. Where you know pre COVID, pre COVID, it's you know the world is moving in this online direction. You know, retail sales are moving online. Shopping is done online. Um, purchases are made on like a lot of stuff is moving online, online communication, social media platforms, all these things. And then all of a sudden COVID happens. Everyone's in their home. And it's like, if you want to connect now, it's imperative. Like all these things are, are necessary because your connection to people in a physical sense has been completely taken away or in, and now that we've kind of exited the total lockdown phase of everything significantly, um, impeded. And, and I'm sure that that's gotta be, I'm sure that that has to be tough. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, do you see a, do you see a big, um, difference or a gap opening up between, um, mental health outcomes for, uh, the younger population that might be just more intuitively uh, making that 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 switch or had already made that complete switch to the t- like the technological world versus uh, the an older population that might have that m- might have been very hesitant to adopt the online world and is now feeling like th- they have no choice but to but to interact in this way. So in general, there's definitely a difference between uh, younger people and older people in the way that they use technology. But on the other hand, I also have to say that we should be open to the older generation because sometimes they actually are pretty amazing with it. So I have a lot of grandfathers who are on TikTok to communicate with their grandchildren. So I think it depends. And we as clinicians just have to show them how easy it sometimes is. Um, because they have a lot of ideas how it is, but you can design things in a way that it's okay for them. So, for example, when I design apps for all the people, I just make the buttons big. <laughs> just mm. look at the way that it's written that's a bit bigger and the coloring system is different. So when we do something like every, children, everything's black and white for older people, do you make do you make it all black and white? So it's kind of like 
oh, back in the day, you know, or <laughs> black um, and white. Yeah, because everyone is like everyone who's using technology who's who's quote unquote old is ninety seven. Yeah, yeah, before before <laughs> color existed on TV. So it's not completely wrong. We actually work with much more white backgrounds when we work with older people and bluish right. colors. But uh, for example, oh. youth like black themed things. So when the background is black and then you have rather bright colors, that that is something that we do for youth. We also designed now a app basically in a way that you can choose what your background is. So you can um, cool. say, okay, I want to have it purple <laughs> and then the front <laughs> should be something different. So yeah, we try I'm really, to make uh, it like that. I'm really, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by I'm 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 really interested that that you mentioned that you're you're working with um like app development with um older uh populations because and and this will probably sound like I'm half joking but I'm 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 very serious. I mean, when you see when you when I have a when I have a a uh, a conversation with my with either my mom or my dad. They're both they're both not super technologically inclined, but my mom is more so than my dad and and there's a difference there and and it seems like if I, it seems like sometimes if I laid out a very similar process of how to do something, you know, uh, that isn't technological, that had the same amount of steps and the same relative seem difficulty, then there's no, there's no issue. It's just, it's like, okay, boom, do it once, got it. And then on the technological side, it's like all of a sudden something becomes very confusing. And, and is there anything concrete that that can be said about why and again again this is a I'm painting with a broad brush here but my perception that on average an older uh, someone from an older uh, generation or older population has uh, more difficulty with technology and I'm wondering if it's something this is just my putting some something out there you know I grew up basically six years of my life seven years of my life without the internet and that's it and everything else has, has been internet related and technology related. Is it is it maybe that my parents spent, you know, 30 years of their life, 35, 37 years of their life with no no internet and then all of a sudden they're being catapulted into this world of the internet and that that those techniques and those those pathways aren't as aren't as as solidified or as easy to to create. What Taylor, do we know anything about that? Are you asking besides like we besides the fact that we know they have smaller brains? <laughs> Whoa! Shots fired! Jesus Christ, Brian! Brian, here's the line. Here's the line. You that just you funny. just won the gold medal in the triple jump. <laughs> I love that, that Brian just continues. I love that Brian just continues to dig a hole to make him the least liked member of the sick boy team. That's not true. That's a, <laughs> that was an endearing joke. Keep it up. Keep it up, buddy. Yep. Keep it up. Is it, but it, it, uh, Dr. Meyer, is it is there any is there anything in that? Is there anything that we can look to and say, hey, this is a this is a fairly this is a fairly scientific reason why somebody, on average, from an older popu- from an older generation, has more difficulty with technology than someone from a younger one does. I think what I would explain is that you have a, your experience shape your expectations. So when you have the experience that you work with the internet since you're very young and it always works for you, and mm. you find a solution to things, it, it's pretty easy for you to deal with updates. And even for us, I mean, our generation also had like. Come on, your first computer to what you can computer can do now, but we kind of grew with it. Um, but for someone who's older, I think their expectations are different because they don't have this 
um, experience that they already went through so many things before and all of it worked fine. Um, and when you have this expectation about yourself that you might be dealing with a problem not as perfectly, um, then that actually already affects how you tackle the problem and also how successful mm. you will be with it. So I believe that a lot of the older generation just feel like that they won't succeed in using apps in a certain mm. way. And when we make them aware of that they can, it normally works. So we spend a lot of time just explaining how things work and pictures and videos and in mm -hmm. text. And then it normally works pretty well. So even for people mm -hmm. who think they can shut down the whole internet at one time point, they realize that they can't. Um, right. Mm -hmm. So it's like reframing. So it's, it's, it's really just a, like kind of like pushing, getting the boulder, like moving that boulder, that expectation that it's too hard or it's it's not what I'm used to. I won't be able to do it. But then, as soon as you get that ball rolling, then that's the that's the block. That's the that's the thing that's keeping that's keeping them from from feeling like th they can use technology just as good as anybody uh, anybody else on the planet. Like everybody is everybody really is at the same potential level. There's just a mental blockage that's that's keeping them there. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts we've been we've been kind of dancing around um uh the the fact that you work in the field of of you know specifically you've been working on apps um but you you've worked with a a, a programmer to develop your own app that's focusing on mental health called prosit um can you can you tell us a little bit about the app that you've you've helped develop develop Okay, yeah, so I came to Canada around two years ago, and we had this idea that we wanted to look at how our patients are actually doing outside of the clinical setting, because normally we see them not that often, like once a week or so, and then we ask them how they are doing. A lot of our patients are anxious, and when they are with us, they are normally not anxious. So a lot about anxiety happens in the outside world. And we felt that we want to see how that is actually. Does our treatment change something in the life of someone who's socially anxious? Um, mm. Are they going to malls again? Are they seeing more people? Are they starting social contacts, even if it's only on social media again? Um, this is what we wanted to see. And we thought for that, a mobile sensing app would be perfect because it allows us to passively record all the behaviors of people. Because as you said, normally people are not so good in estimating what they are doing. So for example, when you ask people, how often are you on social media? What you, how often you are actually really on and what you say is still kind of correlating with <laughs> 0 0.5. Yeah. So. Yeah. Whenever, whenever I look at my like screen time on my phone, I'm like, oh, I'm probably down around like two hours. And then I bring it up and I'm like, oh, that's 11 hours. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I get you. Exactly. So we try to just 
use that in a passive way so that we don't have to ask people all the time because when you always get asked about how are you doing with your friends today, it's also a bit annoying. And when we can just do that without mm. annoying them and passively in the background, it's a nice way. And we can also look at what um, a patient actually feels like sometimes when you have a very depressed person. They feel that nothing is really working out. But um, when you then can just look at their actual data that they actually went shopping and groceries and that they went mm. to a friend. And so you can actually show, okay, you're not doing that bad. Or um, when they have sleep problems, sometimes it's nice to see that they also sleep actually a whole night. Even if they don't mm. experience it, it's just um, a good way is it like, of... Is it journal-based? Like, how do you how do you track that stuff? Like, how, how does someone... How do you know that someone, you know, went to the grocery store or or decided to meet up with someone for coffee? Like, is this a, a sort of app that someone has to input that data every day to say, this is what I did today? No, we try not to do that because we believe that we want to look at that really for a long time. So let's say four to six weeks. And I don't feel like that people would actually fill that out every day. So what we try mm. to do is, for example, we use GPS data. So we can see whether you go to a mall, for example, or whether you go to a coffee place. Um, that we can see. We can also see that you go to a park or something like that, where you probably go for a run. Mm. Um, and all this kind of, you can also see sleep data is pretty easy. So um, when basically the screen of the phone is off, when uh, you're not moving, when the light is um, dim, when there's not so much noise around you, then we know that you're likely sleeping in combination with the GPS location. Mm -hmm. uh, we know what time it is. Um, and over that, we know that. Um, we also try to always get the feeling of patience. So we ask them sometimes also whether they went seeing a friend or so, but we try to minimize it that we only do that like once or twice a week so that we can validate this um behavioral data that we have that we get passively and the better we get in the prediction, the less we mm. have to ask people. Have well, you come up against any like privacy concerns with tracking data like that? Um, so we looked at it twofold. So we asked people about it first, like um, we described very well also in different details. So for example, when we look at location, some people are fine when um, we just know that they're somewhere in Halifax. Some are fine when they know the street. And some are even fine with the exact address. So we try to also find the details about it um, and different features. So when we look at it, most people are fine um, giving like health data, like walking or running. So your phone actually measures all that. People are fine with that. They're also fine with calls, but in calls, it's fine as long as you don't record the content of what you're saying and with mm. whom you're talking, for example. And then we tried to design all that in a way um, in our app that addresses that. So we found that, for example, when the control is with the person who has the app, that people are much more willing to share information. Then um, they can say, okay, I can stop the tracking every time without um, having to do anything. So basically, when they work with my app, they can just log out and <laughs> everything is shut down. And they decided that they are not part of it anymore. The other thing was trust. So they trust us because <laughs> I think we are um, the health center. So it's the IWK. All the data comes to us and Dalhousie mm. University. We don't work with any external companies, which we always try um, to ensure. We have, um, I think, also a very good policy in just explaining what we're doing and why mm -hmm. we're doing. So we don't right. just cover data. We explain why we do it. And we also want 
to make sure that we now use a lot of detailed data, but in future, when we see that our prediction can also be done with more summarized data, we will stop using certain data. Mm -hmm. So we just want to have now all the data because we don't know which one is super relevant. And as soon as we know, we will restrict it again. I, th- I think it's really it's like it's it's really easy to tell how fascinating it would be to look at that data. Um, I'm curious about from from the perspective of the patient who is providing you with this data, um, how do you actually action it to make their lives better? Is it and and is that does that range greatly on what you can do based on how robust the data is or how um, open they are with sharing those more personal uh, details? Okay, so we started now in the data gathering phase and we are working now on actually reacting to the profiles of people. Um, And for that, our prediction doesn't have to be perfect. It has to give us a hint to start like a conversation with the patient. So for example, when I feel that one of my patients is highly um, isolated, I will look at the data, think, okay, that might be the case, but then I will ask my patient first whether they feel like that. Because the worst thing that I can do is basically say, it is like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have to see how the patient feels about it because when I sleep four hours, I feel crappy, but other people might feel awesome like that. And it's normal for them. So I need to know where to start with it. And when I find out, for example, they have problems um, in their social interactions, I can ask them, do you have five minutes? And then just send them tips that could help them just to tackle this one problem. And this is how we want to go. So we want to find out, is this your problem? Do you have time to work on that in interest and work on that? And then we send them accordingly information. If that is working, what we send them, we will continue to do so. If they don't like what we send them, we have to find other ways. Or maybe also send them to other services just in the province. So what I want to do is basically create a way of um, finding out what they need and then accordingly bringing the services uh, in a way that they think mm. is useful. Have you been getting much feedback on like how it works? You know, like are are the patients that are using the app pretty receptive to to what you've been able to do with it? I'm I'm just starting. Sort of problem is I'm just starting now with actually being active on the behaviors of people. So far, we just know how they feel about being tracked. Um, And so far, it seems to be fine. So we have now. I think 350 people, most of them are fine doing it. And I can only say that our patients are very severely um, affected, unfortunately. So we mm. even reach people that don't come to the health services that we have in the region because they are so socially anxious that they don't leave the house. Oh, wow. um, and seeing that they actually come to this, uh, and that we could potentially reach them also really with treatment over that, which is my which why we start so much. Initially, we felt we had a lot of time to actually run perfect prediction models, but then we found out that, uh, that nearly 50% of our patients are not coming to the health services. So we felt like, okay, we have to really start with the treatment app to actually do something for this population that we mm-hmm. otherwise don't reach. So mm-hmm. everything got a little bit accelerated. Um mm-hmm over time. I think it really, I think kind of what, what you were saying a few minutes ago about, um, previously about how, um, tracking passively is really important because what is happening versus how someone feels, what, what is, what, how someone is being versus how they feel they're being 
are often some are often two very different things. And especially uh, when you're dealing with um, with mental health issues, so that gap can grow. That gap can be, can grow very wide between between wh- how we feel and wh- what is and how we feel. And it, I'm just I'm I'm very um, I'm very I'm very optimistic. It sounds like you. It sounds like you are doing a very uh, good job at trying to marry those two things together and not make it. This is how it is. So stop feeling like this, and 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 also, and, and also in, in the reverse, and taking how someone feels and and how someone's actually being, and try and 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 really considering those two factors together and and marrying them up. Um, that was uh, that really that really kind of struck me. Um, so thank you for that. It seems like this is uh, it seems like this is mm-hmm. this has the potential to be a very uh, a very beneficial and and helpful endeavor. Are there are there certain um, types of people who are, are certain uh, mental health challenges that would that would be specifically good candidates for a program like this? Like you've talked about social anxiety and people who who would be you know typically maybe not able to like go into a, don't even feel comfortable enough going into a place to access therapy. Um, but I'm also wondering, like, is, are there, are there people who are better candidates and also are there people who are worse? Like I even think of, you know, this is a kind of a crazy example, but thinking of, uh, people who self suffer from like the Truman show disorder and like, like thinking that they're being tracked on their phone, like, obviously that is a very scary and real mental health issue. And if, you know, they might be really resistant to the idea of being tracked because, and and again, like that's a very specific example, but um, it just kind of leads me to the question of: Are there people who would be better for this than than others? Um, so yeah, I think internalizing disorders, depression, anxiety work very well um, because they also benefit from low intense intervention. So, for example, mm. mental health that work very well for them. On the other hand, we know that bipolar or schizophrenia patients mm. that they oftentimes need medication. So when it's really a full-blown psychosis, we can't do something over behavioral changes. We really have to give them medication. The other thing is that a lot of the schizophrenia patients naturally have paranoia. So for them, it could actually reinforce some of their delusions or hallucinations. So we would be very careful about doing it with them. But Mm. that said, many of them are actually taking part in mobile sensing studies, not when they are plurid. And when they have it severely, but for example, when you have schizophrenia, is something that is reoccurring. So sometimes you can just have them when they are fine and you explain them how this mobile sensing app works. And then you can have them install the mobile sensing app and go in the outside world again without the therapist. And when there's something really changing in their behavior massively, the therapist can basically check in with them again whether they are still fine. And that is something that works for these patients as well. So we know that it also works with schizophrenia patients, just not when they are in a very, very severe um, fluid episode, but when they are yeah. fine, they understand the benefit of it. Um, That's really interesting. Is there, uh, you know, I, I know that a lot of our listeners, um, uh, or a lot, there, there's a number of our listeners who are dealing with social anxiety or depression. Um, and maybe hearing this perhaps might feel a bit interested in like, in getting involved in something like this. Like, is there, can people, 
is this the kind of thing that like someone can just go to the app store and download the ProSit mental health app? Or how does how do you find your how do you find your patients? How do patients find you? Um, so so far we haven't felt comfortable enough about the app to actually share it um, publicly. Um, we still run it as a research project, also because of some security things that we want to make sure that people are really fine. Mm. Um, and we also listen to what people are saying. So, for example, when somebody reports some suicidal thoughts, I want to be able to contact them and do sure. something about of it. Course. So this is why we haven't sent it out um, very big so far, because we want to have it under control at the moment and be able to react. So we have that they basically contact us and take part in the study where we do at the moment majorly the behavioral profiling, but we also have um, a focus group in which we will discuss with people how they would like to um, become aware of certain problems that they have. So how shall we communicate what the app actually tracks to people? What information would they like to see? So this is the next step that we actually have all this data, but we have to find out how people would like to see it in mm. what way, how would they be comfortable sharing that? Would they also like to share it with their parents, for example? As I work majorly with children, um, we want to discuss that with people, how and how often um, they should get a certain feedback, how they should be sharing it, for example, with their doctors. It always depends also on the setting. When you have a clinician with you, would you like to share with the clinician? Would you not like to share it? What parts of the information would you like to share with your doctor? So mm -hmm. all these things I would like to know um, because I would like to design uh, my app in a way and improve it in a way that it majorly fits the needs of um, my patients. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, this is uh, very exciting to know that, you know, that there's, uh, that there's work being done out there to, to utilize technology in a way that is in fact, um, pushing us forward to be better, uh, and, and more, more healthy when it comes to our, our mental health. And, and it's not all just about the, the likes and the comments and the dings and the dopamine and the addiction, uh, that there's, there's tools out there that we can look forward to, um, to kind of take care of ourselves. So it's, uh, I'm really glad that you're doing this work. Um, and I'm really glad that you took the time to sit down and, and share this with us today. Thank you so much. I would also like to say that um, behind me is a really, really big team. So um, we're working together with computer science, with psychiatry, psychology, epidemiologists. So we're trying to have like all the disciplines in there to make it uh, fit the patients as well as possible. And naturally, I would like to thank everyone that is actually taking part in my research and enabling us to do this work. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Meyer, for taking the time out of your day today to chat with us from all the way over in Germany, I believe you said before we started recording. Yes. Wow. Thank you. Technology, right, guys? We can talk to people. <laughs> I all the way. love technology. It's the, it's the best. <laughs> Can't live with it. Can't live without it. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Meyer. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, that was our conversation with Dr. Meyer. And um, I feel I feel a little refreshed. You know, I feel like <clears throat> maybe I should put down the goddamn phone, lift my head up to give my neck and shoulders a break 
and take in the lovely sights and smells and sounds and scenes of the summer while we have it. Um, actually, you know what? I so I've been I I've been thinking uh, now that I I told you about my daily average screen time, which again is just uh, <coughs> six and a half hours a day. Um, uh, how about this? If a little like a little social media challenge. Um, if your screen time is averaging about the same or more than mine, just to hold yourself accountable, I dare you to post um, post a screenshot of that into your story on Instagram, and then tag at Sick Boy Podcast, and uh, we'll be sure to show the world that how how much um, how bad you are at. Not putting your phone down, and then that'll then that will make me feel less less like a piece of shit. Okay, then um, that is it uh, for this week, folks. We love each and every one of you. Big shout out to all of our patrons. We love you the most. Um, big thank you to Lauren Sankey, our co-producer and communications lead here at Sick Boy Podcast, for helping us put this together. Uh, big thank you to Brian and Taylor, the co-hosts of the show. I love them so much. I love you boys. You sweet, sweet boys. Big shout out to Donovan the Meerkat Morgan for giving me all the tips and tricks on how to use this editing software. That's right, folks. Still learning. Still learning. Been five years into this. Still have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. All right. Well, I think that's all for this week. I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.